the gospel lesson is written in the 19th chapter of Matthew, beginning at the 16th verse. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's gospel lesson is one that's often misunderstood. So we're going to take a broad look at the words of Christ to learn a powerful truth today a truth that's essential to understanding God's grace, his unearned love. To explore this truth about faith, I'm going to take you on a little trip through the scriptures, and then we'll return to this great gospel lesson. To grasp the meaning of Jesus' words, it's helpful to understand his use of hyperbole. Hyperbole is a figure of speech, one that Jesus uses regularly. If you don't know what hyperbole is and how Jesus employs it, many of the things he says can be baffling. Sometimes people actually try to explain away the truth of Christ's words because they just don't get it. So let's start with the definition. Hyperbole is intentional exaggeration to make a point. Hyperbole is not deception. The author or speaker intends the audience to know he's exaggerating to express a particular truth. Here are some commonly used examples of hyperbole that we often employ in 21st century America. Perhaps you've said some of these. Here's the first one. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Or how about this one? I have a million things to do today. And this one's my favorite. When I was a kid, 
I had to walk 15 miles to school every day in the snow uphill both ways. Hyperbole might underscore a statement in a very serious way, but it often also adds a bit of humor. The use of hyperbole is not only found in the New Testament teaching of Jesus, we see it in the Old Testament too. Here's an example. In 2 Chronicles, we read the familiar story of the Almighty asking Solomon what he'd like to be given as king. To which Solomon replies, give me wisdom and understanding so that I can effectively lead this nation. Quite pleased with this answer, God grants Solomon the requested wisdom and the riches, wealth, and honor he didn't ask for. And then the 15th verse reads, The king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. So what do you think? Were silver and gold literally as plentiful as stones? Of course not. This is not to be taken at face value. To underscore that God's promises are fulfilled abundantly, this entry exaggerates to make the point. It's hyperbole. Let's look now at what Jesus does with hyperbole to make a very serious point in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5.29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Sometimes Christ's use of hyperbole causes people real problems in comprehending scripture. And this is a good example. This is part of his instruction regarding faithfulness in marriage and turning away from adultery. He is not advocating self-mutilation. Instead, he's telling us to take resolute action to avoid sin. Jesus uses shocking imagery here to underscore the great importance of remaining faithful to one's spouse. Here's another example, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, nobody's living up to this one. Has the saying of Jesus ever bothered you? If so, it's because you are taking it literally when it's hyperbole. The overstatement that you must hate every member of your family emphasizes in a striking way that love for Christ must have priority. It takes precedence over even the most natural and intimate loves of your life. The powerful instruction here is that one should put God first. Jesus Christ uses hyperbole as he teaches these eternal truths. Now, hyperbole isn't always so deadly serious. It can also be funny. Recognizing both the wisdom and wit of Jesus helps us understand his message. Do you ever think about Jesus being a humorous speaker? 
To regard him as an always solemn teacher ignores the richness of his message. Now, I know some of you may be sitting there thinking, Scripture teaches that Jesus is a man of sorrows. Well, that reference is in the prophetic writings of Isaiah, describing the crucifixion. It most certainly does not mean that Jesus failed to laugh, smile, or joke. God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus. He's truly human as well as truly divine. Humor is a part of our humanity, which he fully shares in, and that's obvious in Scripture. A favorite object of his criticism is the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. So let's look at an example of that. To fully get this next bit, it helps to understand something about the Jewish dietary laws, which largely come from the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. For those invested in being meticulous rule followers, these books provided plenty of rules on many topics, including diet. Here we even read about which insects are good to eat and which are not. Leviticus 11, 22 to 23 reads, Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind, but all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Well, yum. Using this law, Jesus humorously and hyperbolically criticizes any hypocritical following of the law. In Matthew 23, 24, he says, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. The Pharisees and teachers of the law are his targets here, the ones he calls blind guides. But that's not who he's speaking to. The audience is spelled out in the first verse of Matthew 23. Jesus' audience is actually the disciples, and the crowds who've come to hear him speak. You need to know here that gnats are among those unclean insects, the ones you're not supposed to eat. So wine was carefully strained to make sure that no gnat bits were ingested. Yet Jesus says that even though the teachers and Pharisees obsessively strained wine for fragments of unclean bugs, they'd swallow a camel whole. And by the way, camels were forbidden food too. So are you picturing this? It's a funny image, crazy and impossible, obvious hyperbole. Here Jesus criticizes the observance of the minutia of the law while ignoring the big picture, the overarching intent of the law. The law is not a matter of following mere details and regulations to the letter, but instead, it's all about loving and serving God faithfully, set apart for him. Now, Jesus refers to a camel in this passage, and there's also a camel reference in the gospel reading for today. In Matthew 19, 24, we read, Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. A misguided analysis of this passage has sent some Christians on a wild goose chase in search of a place called the eye of the needle. Jesus is not speaking of a geographic location here, but he's talking about a needle. Yes, a sewing needle. Christ is painting a picture for us. Visualize a sewing needle. The eye is tiny. Can you imagine a camel, the largest animal around in the ancient Middle East, squeezing through there? No way. He wants us to see that this is just not happening. It's hyperbole. Now, hear this next part carefully. This is the important bit. A rich man has come to Jesus asking, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, this rich guy is assuming salvation is something he must earn. This is where their conversation begins. What good deed must I do? This is the question Jesus is answering. It's all about earning eternal life through good deeds. In this gospel lesson, we tend to focus on the fact that this conversation is with and about a rich man. It doesn't matter if the man is rich or not. The answer is going to be the same. Here's Jesus' reply to the question. If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. We tend to focus on that part about selling everything and giving it away because we're grounded in the possessions and money of this world, and the thought of being penniless is something we reject. If that's the kind of good deed we must do to earn salvation, we are sunk. We feel like we might as well just give up because we sure aren't going to do that. The astonished disciples feel the same way. They want to know who then can be saved. The disciples ask this despairingly, knowing they aren't measuring up. We understand that feeling. But you know what? This is a really good question. This is the question the rich man should have asked. Instead, his question was what good deeds he needed to do so that he could earn his eternal life. So the rich man's mindset is, give me a list. What must I do? Give me a list. Well, if you want a list, Jesus will give you a list on what you need to do to be perfect and earn salvation. But no one's going to be perfect. No one's going to be able to check off everything on the perfect list. No one's going to be saved by good deeds, like this rich guy's trying to do. Because if we're relying on our perfection for salvation, well, the chances of success 
are as likely as a big, hairy, brown camel passing through the eye of a sewing needle. And so we read, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. No one's going to be perfect. It's just not happening. Only God is good. So, who gets saved? Those who believe in and rely on God's grace. Because with him, all things are possible. We're all sinners. Not one of us will be saved by our own action. We might as well be camels trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle. Salvation's not an accomplishment of any person, rich or poor. If we could do it all on our own, there would have been no need for the cross. Christ was nailed to rough timbers and died in agony to earn for us what we could not earn for ourselves. The broken, those sunk in filthy sin and far from perfect can be saved through faith in the Lord. But salvation will never happen by doing great good deeds. We are saved only through our powerful and loving God. His grace, his unearned love, makes all things possible, even the salvation of sinners like you and me. God does all the work, and to him alone goes all the glory. Amen.